Charles Templeton was one of Billy Graham's closest and best friends when they were younger. In the 1940s, when they were both begin- when Graham was beginning his ministry, he and Templeton traveled around the U.S. doing crusades and evangelism events, and they roomed together on the road. Templeton founded a church that soon overflowed its 1,200-seat sanctuary, and American Magazine said this about Templeton, that he set a new standard for mass evangelism. Some even felt that he would surpass Graham in his success as a preacher. Graham and Templeton were best friends. In fact, Graham once told a biographer, he's one of the few men I've ever really loved in my life. But in 1949, Charles Templeton abandoned the faith. He said, I had gone through a conversion experience as an incredibly green youth. I lacked the intellectual skills and the theological training needed to buttress my beliefs when, as was inevitable, questions and doubts began to plague me. My reason had begun to challenge and sometimes to rebut the central beliefs of the Christian faith. Graham felt torn. He was caught in the middle between Templeton's doubts and the faith-filled assurances of another good friend, Henrietta Mills. Templeton told Graham, Billy, you're 50 years out of date. People no longer accept the Bible as being inspired the way you do. Your faith is too simple. In his book, The Case for Faith, which is a fantastic book, by the way, if you struggle with intellectual doubts regarding the faith, Lee Strobel picks up the story. He writes, Graham searched the scriptures for answers. He prayed and he pondered. Finally, in a heavy-hearted walk in the moonlit San Bernardino Mountains, everything came to a climax. Gripping the Bible, Graham dropped to his knees and confessed he couldn't answer some of the philosophical and psychological questions that Templeton and others were raising. I was trying to be on the level with God, but something remained unspoken, Graham wrote. At last, the Holy Spirit freed me to say, Father, I'm going to accept this as your word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts, and I will believe this to be your inspired word. Rising from his knees, tears in his eyes, Graham said he sensed the power of God as he hadn't in several months. Not all my questions were answered, he said, but a major bridge had been crossed. In my heart and mind, a newest spiritual battle had been fought and won. Two very gifted men, Charles Templeton and Billy Graham, both of them faced doubts about the truth of the scripture and the validity of the Christian faith. But each went in a radically different direction. One faced doubt and abandoned the faith. The other faced doubt and struggled, but in the end decided to accept the faith. The question I have for us this morning is, what do we do, we ourselves, what do we do when we, when we face difficult circumstances or situations in our lives that cause us to question who God is? Does he exist? What is he doing? What's his plan? What's the purpose? How do we respond when we encounter doubt? I'm going to read a couple of verses again from the passage that Cindy read just a minute ago from John 20, this time starting at verse 24. And then we're going to delve into this question, what do we do with doubt? And today we're starting a, a kind of a short sermon series, three or four weeks on the post-resurrection Jesus. And Jesus encounters with people post-resurrection. And today we're looking at the issue of, of doubt and the story of, of Thomas. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. 
But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop believing and and stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Luke's uh, account of this story, um, this phrasing is a little bit different. Instead of saying, stop doubting and believe, Jesus says, why do you doubt? He asks a question of, of Thomas. Now, I doubt that Jesus was surprised that Thomas had doubts. Um, after all, at every turn for the past three years, it seemed like disciples had misunderstood and misinterpreted what Jesus had said and done. Time and again, it seems that disciples would go from periods of flashes of insight and understanding to periods of dullness and to seem to miss the point. So Jesus, I doubt, was surprised by their doubts. So why would he have asked the question, why do you doubt? It wasn't a criticism. It wasn't, he wasn't scolding them. Rather, I believe he was asking the question to engage them to, as an invitation to, to reach out to see if he was real, to see if he'd actually risen from the dead, to see if he was who he said he was, to help them to move from disbelief to belief. You know, Jesus also knows and is not surprised if and when we struggle with doubts. We're human, right? It's part of being a human being. So sometimes have questions about what God is doing and what's happening in the world and why. And so today we're going to be looking at the issue of doubt, looking at why doubt happens sometimes in our lives, our possible options in response to the doubt, and then looking at Scripture to see the best way to, to handle the doubt. First, I think there are primarily two reasons that doubt arises in our lives. You can boil it down to a lot of things, but there's a lot of stuff. But you can boil it down to two primary reasons, I believe. The first one is unmet expectations. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago at Palm Sunday, but the whole idea of unmet expectations, simply put, Doubt can creep into our lives when things don't match our expectations. I mean, we all have expectations, right? Some of them we can, we can articulate. Others are kind of deeper down. We don't, really, we don't really understand. We don't really articulate, but they're there driving our actions and our thoughts. Uh, we have expectations about who God is and what he's supposed to be doing, what he's like, about how life is supposed to work, right? How our lives are supposed to work, about what faith should look like. And when things in our world, in our lives, do not match up with what we expect, the window can open to doubt. For example, maybe, maybe you've lost a loved one prematurely to disease or illness. Maybe, maybe you've got a diagnosis that has hit you like a ton of bricks. Maybe a relationship has fallen apart that you really value and you've seemingly done nothing wrong and everything right, but but it's fallen apart. Maybe uh, uh, your spouse is going a different direction. Maybe one of your children hasn't, isn't becoming the person you thought they would become. Or it could be that doubt has arisen because of what you see happening in the world around you. Belief can fall prey to doubt, to, to, to questions, when life gets hard and our expectations aren't met. 
like John the Baptist in Luke 7. Remember John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin? Um, he knows that they knew each other growing up. Uh, they're within a couple of months of each other in age. And John the Baptist, we were told, was a prophet sent to prepare the way for Christ's coming. And so we know that John the Baptist went around preaching repentance and baptizing people, calling people to give their lives to God. And in Luke 7, we find John in prison. He's been put there by Herod. And he begins to have some doubts. He's beginning to wonder, this wasn't how I thought it was going to end. I didn't think I'd end up in prison, about to be beheaded. Where is Jesus? What is he doing? Is he really the one I'm putting my life on the line for her? And so John sends out some, some messengers to go and talk to Jesus and, and ask him, are you the one that, who is to come or should we be waiting for somebody else? And Jesus' response is, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Remember, John was the one who, who, when Jesus was baptized, said, look, there is the Lamb of God. He's come to save, to wash away the sins of the world and to save us. But John is thrown into prison. And his expectation of Jesus was that Jesus would be a different kind of Messiah. One who would bring freedom to all people, not just spiritually, but would throw off the chains of the Roman Empire and establish a kingdom. And when his expectations are not met, he begins to doubt. So we see from this that not only non-believers or, or new believers or immature believers have doubts, but even those who are, who are being used significantly of God can, can have doubts. Belief falls prey to questions when doubt gets hard. Now I should interject something here. Doubt can be good. Okay? Doubt doesn't necessarily have to be bad. It can cause us to grow in our faith, to, to cause us to, to seek the truth, to seek knowledge, to seek God more intently. It can cause us to look for answers to tough questions. Philosopher and theologian and psychologist Paul Turnier said this about doubt. He said, The person who claims never to have doubted does not know what faith is, for faith is forged through doubt. It can be part of our, our faith development. It can cause us to let go of false assumptions we have about, about God and life and, and help us to hold on to only that which is true. So one reason that we doubt is unmet expectations. Another reason can be the, the big intellectual questions, you know, the ones that are really difficult to answer. For instance, if God is all-powerful and he's good all the time and he's all-knowing, then why did he allow evil into the world in the first place? We, we say it by saying, why, why, does, why do bad things happen to good people? Or, conversely, why do good things happen to bad people? Another question sometimes people will ask would be, what about the people who have never heard about Jesus Christ? What happens to them? And so on and so forth. And it's not wrong to ask those sort of questions. God has given us a mind, Right? A mind with the ability to understand and to analyze and to wonder. You know, that's why there have been so many incredible inventions and discoveries over the centuries in human history. God has created us with a drive, a search, a thirst for truth and knowledge and meaning and purpose. But sometimes in that search we can run into a cul-de-sac, right? Intellectually, 
where we circle around and around and, and really aren't getting anywhere and can only go so far because we're human and we're limited in our ability to understand and to know. You know, my experience has been that we as human beings tend to approach this issue of doubt one of two ways. We can look for reasons to believe, come from that perspective, or we can look for reasons not to believe. And my experience has been that faith tends to come easier for certain personality types. Some of us struggle with doubt a good portion of our lives. Others seldom do. Why should it be easier for some to believe than others? Maybe that's a question you've asked as you've seen some people you love have faith so easily others struggle. I don't have a, a good answer for that question. But I do believe this. God has made us each unique with different personalities, with different strengths and challenges. And if God has made you with a mind that questions and analyzes, that sometimes finds it hard to believe is searching for answers, that doesn't rest and gets answers, that's okay. Some of the heroes of the faith have had doubts. And if that's you, I encourage you to continue to seek understanding, but try to do it from the place of looking for reasons to believe. And from my humble perspective, there are a lot more reasons to believe than not to. I, I, would, I, would, I would say that it takes more faith not to believe than to believe. And we don't have time to get into this very far, but just one example. What are the odds that the Earth is placed the perfect distance from the sun, with the perfect mix of gases in the atmosphere, with the right mix of water and land and elements to sustain life? It's astronomical. What are the odds that the cell and the, and the atom, essentially a highly complex mini-computer, just happened to fall together in the right order in the combination that led to human and animal and plant life happening? I mean, if you, took all the separate, if you were able to separate all the parts of the cell or the atom and throw them into a box and shake it, or put them into a blender, what are the odds that the cell and the atom, as we know it, would emerge? We can know God personally. And we can know the answers to many questions. Probably 95% or more. We can know the answers to as we study God's word, as we seek the Lord in prayer, as we do life with our fellow believers, as we observe life and creation and order. But there will always, always be that 1, 2, 3, 4, 5%. Those questions that we'll never get answers to, or at least answers that are totally satisfactory. That's why it's called faith. It's called faith because God wants us to trust him and he wants us to rely on him and he wants us to seek him. I mean, if we never faced situations where we were uncomfortable, where we, if we always had all the answers, we would never grow in our trust and faith in God. We, we would be self-reliant, not God-reliant. So, We've talked a little bit about why we can doubt, some of the reasons for doubt. Let's look at some of our possible responses to doubt. Our first option could be to throw up our hands and say, I give up. It's simply too hard. I give up. I'm going to stop searching. When we do this, we're giving in to despair. When we cannot believe or don't know what to believe, we can despair of life altogether. And begin to really, in those moments alone, begin to question, what's this all about? What's the purpose What's the point? And we can flounder around with no footing for our faith when our first, when we were our response is, I give up. Another option can be to shrug our shoulders and say, I can't really know. 
I mean, and we allow our doubts to excuse us in a sense. When we do this, we're saying, I cannot be certain of certain things, so what's the point in even trying to know or to understand or pursue truth? And we can use our doubts to be irresponsible toward God and inattentive toward God. You see, faith can be mixed with doubt. That can lead to positive growth. But doubt cannot be mixed with apathy. Because eventually it will lead us to a place of despair with no hope for this life or the life to come. Our third option is to turn and face our doubts and allow our doubts to stir us to action. You see, doubt can be a starting place in our relationship with God. So remember with the two primary reasons that we can doubt are unmet expectations or unusual ex- or, or, um, or intellectual questions. So how can we respond to this or what, what's the Bible say about this? As people, what are we supposed to expect out of life? And what are we supposed to understand about Jesus? What are we supposed to understand about who we are and what we are called to do? When John the Baptist had these questions, and when the disciples had these questions, what did Jesus do? Jesus came to them. He invited them to come to him, to reach out to him, to touch him, to experience him, to see if, in fact, he was real, he was risen, if he was the Lord and the Savior. And he took him to the Scriptures. In the Luke account, Luke 24 after the resurrection and, and these encounters, Jesus, it says, said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Now, God reveals himself to us through his creation and world. God reveals himself to us through his word, and God reveals himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And so when we have questions and doubts, we, we must begin by turning to the Bible and allow it to begin to shape our expectations. For example, have you ever said to anybody, it's just not fair? Have you ever said it to God? It's just not fair that he got the job and I didn't. It's just not fair that they're married and have kids and I'm not. It's just not fair that they're healthy and I'm not, so on and so forth. And you know, when we look at the Bible, fairness is not a real big part of God's vocabulary. Justice is. And God says that on Judgment Day, justice will be served. But fairness, or at least our definition of it, doesn't receive a lot of attention. I mean, think about the parable of the workers, where Jesus tells a story about this, this guy who owns a vineyard, and it's in Matthew 20. And, and at the beginning of the day, he hires some workers. At noon, he hires some workers. And then an hour before the the day is over, the work day is over, you hire some more workers. And at the end of the day, they all get paid the exact same wage. Try that at work sometimes. See how people respond. I'm guessing there's going to be some protesting. That's not fair. And they'd be right. It's not fair. Why should people be paid the same amount when they work different hours and have the same responsibilities? What does a vineyard owner say in response to their protest in Matthew 20. He says, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? The story of the prodigal son. Remember that story? He runs away. He squanders everything. He comes crawling back to his father and his father accepts him back, 
restores him, puts him on the same level with the older son who never left home and always does what he's told to do. And then in John 21, Jesus tells Peter that he, Peter, is going to die as a martyr. Peter looks at John and says, well, what about him? Jesus basically says, if I want to keep him alive until I return, what is that to you? Follow me. Again, it's not exactly fair. You see, fairness implies a formula, right? Cause and effect, do good, get good, do bad, get bad. Everybody gets the same amount of goodies, no favoritism allowed. And although there, don't get me wrong, there are certainly principles that if we follow, usually that will lead to a predictable result. And God's blessing, first and foremost, life with God is not about formulas of fairness. It's about faith, trust, and obedience. So God's word is to shape our expectations, to help us to rethink our assumptions, to reorder our priorities, and to help us re-examine our faith. Now, I've got to admit that there have been points in my life where I've asked questions of God and, and have been frustrated or puzzled because I couldn't find the answer. Um, there have been times when I've begun to ask questions and, and okay, what, what is going on here? Uh, for example, just one, one example, I remember very clearly uh, my freshman year at KU, I was taking a class, Honors Seminar on Western Civilization. Sounds really interesting, doesn't it? And basically, it was a small group, about 10 or 12 of us, with a professor. And we would get together, and we were assigned reading materials from like the beginning of time to today. Philosophy, theology, political theory, all sorts of things, economic theory, all this stuff. And we would get together and we'd discuss it, and then hand in paper summarizing our thoughts. And I distinctly remember the day that, that we discussed the book of Job. And it was very clear from the beginning of the discussion that this was not going to be a, 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 a this professor was not very friendly to the Christian perspective. And he began attacking the idea of God with all sorts of questions, questions I certainly was not prepared to answer at the time. I tried and did the best I could, and I don't think I did that well. Nobody else in the class stepped up to help me. And it shook me up a little bit. I began to hunger for, for more, more, more intellectual answers, deeper ideas and thoughts. And so I began to reasons to believe. And so I began to read people like Josh McDowell and other Christian apologists to find help. And they did help. I began to have discussions with some of my friends who were deeper in the faith, and that helped. But I've got to tell you, the book that helped me the most was the Bible. I mean, who knew? And so as I searched, I began to think through my assumptions about who God was, how he worked, and what he wanted from me. And it helped me to reorder my priorities. I discovered that what I thought was really important in life wasn't always that important to God. And I reexamined my faith. Was it my faith or was it my parents, my pastors, my Sunday school teachers' faith? In the midst of all this, God's word anchored me and guided me and shaped me and helped me to, to grow through the doubt. And even though I didn't have all the answers, I began to, I began to get better understanding and, and, and discovered that, that this, this stuff that I've been saying I claimed was true really was true as I experienced the living God. And then finally, and we alluded to this earlier, is in, in response to our faith, we are to go to Jesus Christ directly. 
It seems fundamental, and it is, but it's vitally essential. You know, so often when we say we have doubts about God or the faith, really what we're saying is we have doubts about the church. Or we have doubts about people who claim to be his followers. Because, let's face it, the church and its followers, myself included, we, we fail, we're inconsistent, we're hypocritical at times. We don't live up to everything that we claim to, to live up to or want to live up to. But I would say never ever reject Christ because of the failures and imperfections of his people. We are judged on how we respond to Christ, whether we accept him or not. So, in, so instead, when we Instead of rejecting Christ because of the failures of the church and his followers, we are to go to Christ directly and personally. And just like, just like Thomas did, to, to reach out, to extend our hand, to hear his invitation, and to test and see if, if he is real and if it's, if it's true. God calls us to come to him with all our questions. When you really study scripture, there's a lot of people asking a lot of questions. The Psalms, some places in the Gospels, Job asking questions of God, and that's okay. That's all right. Honest doubt can be a very good place to start with God. But doubt must not become our destination. Those who had doubts in the Bible had the courage to admit their doubts and then continue with God until things could be made clear. So take your doubts to the Lord. Reach out to Jesus. Go to his word. Let it shape your expectations and challenge your assumptions and inform your experiences. And keep on your lips the words of Mark 9.24. Lord, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for for your love for us and how you've created us for a relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, that you've created us with minds to that thirst for knowledge and seek understanding. Father, I pray that we would be people who would want to grow in our knowledge of you and what you're doing and to seek answers for our own benefit, but also for the benefit of those that we have the chance to share our faith with. God, I pray that when we inevitably come across doubts in our lives, that we would go to your word, that we'd seek you in prayer, that we would that we would seek Jesus. Lord, we thank you that, that you've called us. Lord, we do believe. Help us to overcome our unbelief. Thank you for your love for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.